This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Third Squad is a podcast about war. Every episode contains strong language and descriptions of violence that may not be suitable for all listeners. Also, this is episode two. If you haven't listened to episode one, you might want to start there. Everything will make a lot more sense. Up. Did you think it was someone else with audio? Are you rolling tape right now? Yes, always. Are you serious? It's March 3rd, 2021, and America's chaotic withdrawal from Afghanistan is still five months in the future. But right now, I'm at the airport in San Diego to pick up my friend and third squad producer, Tommy Andres. He's going to join me on that road trip I told you about in the last episode, the one from California to North Carolina that Michael Dutcher never got to take. Wow, you brought a lot of shit. <laughs> I'm really this glad in? this is all you have. Actually. I did bring a blow dryer, just in case. So, the mean, zero hour has finally arrived, and we've got a rendezvous scheduled with Michael Miner, the first of the third squad yeah, Marines on our itinerary. He lives here in California, and he's going to show us around Camp Pendleton, where third squad lived and trained before Sangin. So we stuff Tommy's gear into the rental car, and we head north. All right, crossing onto the base, Marine Corps Base Camp Pendleton, Christianitos Gate. Hi there. What do you need, driver's license? Oh, okay, cool, thank you. All right. This is where it all began for Third Squad. Camp San Mateo, home of the Fighting Fifth Marines. That's not an exaggeration. I'm Elliot Woods. This is Third Squad. Episode 2, Riding the Wave. It's been 10 years since I last saw Michael Miner back at patrol base fires when he was weighed down with body armor and wearing camo. But I recognize him immediately when we pull into the parking lot. What's up? What's going on? Not much. Long time no see. Oh, yeah. Elbow bump. <laughs> yeah. How are you? I'm doing all right, man. How about you guys? Hanging in there. Right. So tell me about who do we have here. Miner's got his two dogs with him, Bella and Kenny. Hey, Bella. He was 25 when we met back in Sangin, one of the oldest guys in the squad. Now he's 35, and he's got some new wrinkles around his eyes. Okay, cool. His fiance is also joining us for the day. Hi, Hi. I'm Elliot. Nice to meet you. You Elliot. must be Laura. Cool. Miner's wearing a faded black hoodie that looks like it might be his new uniform. 
the kangaroo pockets torn on one side, and it's got the Geronimo head logo of the 1st Battalion, 5th Marines, the battalion that 3rd Squad belonged to. And their slogan, make peace or die. But it's been, uh, since 2012 was the last time I was down here. Nothing's changed except the trees got taller. We're standing in front of the barracks where Miner lived with the rest of 3rd Squad. It's a plain brick building with concrete walkways around each floor and exterior doors to the rooms like a motel. There's my old room. And the room there on the end had bed bugs. And O'Brien stayed in that room right there next to it. There are a bunch of other barracks and headquarters buildings nearby that all look pretty much the same. Almost like if a prison architect got to design a college campus. Which fits, since being in the military is kind of like being a prisoner and a member of a huge fraternity <laughs> at the same time. It's a fraternity, yeah, but, I mean, we get paid to drink and shoot guns, but at the same time, the reason why you drink and build that camaraderie is because when you get deployed, the guy to your left and your right, that's who your, that's, your life is in their hands. You have to break down all barriers when you first meet someone and instill that trust in them to know that they're going to be able to pull you through any situation you get into. Now, do you feel anything when you come back here? Just how shitty the barracks are. That's about it. So no nostalgia, no, uh, none of those, no. you know, poetic feelings? No, none of those. Weak grounds, we're not poets. <laughs> there are a lot of jokes in the military about how Marines are not exactly known for their intelligence. <laughs> well, everybody thinks Marines are dumb and we eat crayons. And like Jarhead, for instance, because, you know, a jar is always empty unless you put something in there. Here's a more charitable definition of Jarhead. Because of their single-minded willingness to put their duty before themselves, Marines are said to have jarheads, hard on the outside and empty on the inside. We're here, more than anything, to see a memorial to that single-minded willingness to put duty before self. That's, uh, that's First Sergeant's Hill. You guys sure you still want to go up? Absolutely. From a distance, First Sergeant's Hill just looks like a gentle grassy slope, maybe a couple hundred feet tall. But the trail to the top is slick from yesterday's rain, and years of runoff have carved a deep trench down the center. All right, shall we? Yeah, let's head out. All right. And that's when Tommy comes in for the FNG treatment, the fucking new guy. I mean, it's, it's not as intimidating as it looks, man. Oh, I'll be fine. Also, you know, Tommy, if things got heavy, I would carry your stuff for you. I would do that for you. It's very sweet. I appreciate it. It probably won't come as a surprise to you that shit-talking is baked into the bro culture of the military. We tease Tommy about his new boots and his skinny jeans and the fact that he brought a blow dryer on the trip. A blow, a blow dryer? For the fucking... Oh, dude, you're ratting me out now? Sorry. <laughs> this is a podcast about me getting made fun of. That's it. Like uh, ten episodes of me getting razzed for... Oh, there, there's, some, there's some guys you'll meet that'll give you a lot more shit than me. I'm actually one of the tame ones. That's good. <laughs> All right. Pretty soon it starts to feel like more of a climb than a hike. Oh, shit. It's been a while. At one especially steep spot, our feet slip out from under us and we drop to all fours. Yeah. Tough call. That other side might actually be easier. Because <laughs> it's dry. Too late. <laughs> what have I got myself into? <laughs> Holy crap. <laughs> After a few false summits, a cluster of wooden crosses comes into view. Mind-blowing, huh? Yeah. You weren't expecting it, were you? 
The first crosses I see bristle out from a huge pile of boulders. There's a heap of telephone poles and truck tires and sandbags wrapped in duct tape. That, all that is shit that we carried up the hill. This is by everybody who uh, survived the deployments. The crosses are handmade out of lumber. Dozens of them stretch back for hundreds of yards from that first cluster, up and over a grassy meadow overlooking the barracks to the north and the ocean to the west. Because this right here is where the true heroes of the 5th Marines lie. These are the ones that paid the price. Each of these memorials bears the name of someone who didn't come home, carved into the wood or painted with stencils. They're all different, each one decorated with some combination of military belts, rank insignia, t-shirts, and threadbare flags. Beer cans and half-consumed bottles of liquor rest at some of their bases. So you haven't been up here in nine years? The last time I came up here, I was pretty, pretty drunk. That way I didn't feel the hill. <laughs> what about what's at the top of the hill? Did you feel that? Oh yeah, you can feel it instantly once you walk up here, man. Just all the memories and you can just feel the presence. Like you guys, I don't know if you felt it when you walked up, but it's just a sense of uh, overwhelming feeling of, oh shit, here we go. These crosses represent the dead from the 5th Marines and the supporting units that served with them, including the Navy corpsmen, the sailors who care for the wounded Marines in combat. Almost all of them are KIAs, killed in action, from Iraq and Afghanistan. We used to, I don't know if they still do it, all the new guys, we always make them come up here. and You want them to see what they're fighting for. It's not only their friends and their family and, you know, for the country, but you're keeping these guys' memories alive. These are the warriors who paid the ultimate sacrifice for you to continue doing what you need to do today. This, this, is, this is how we pay homage. We don't have thousands of dollars to get granite slabs carved with their names, but a little bit of sweat and some tears, a little bit of blood every now and then coming up that hill to pay respect to everyone that's been lost. Miner sets off looking for the crosses of the men he knew. Up the hill, he finds one made of 4x4 four four posts and anchored by a few heavy rocks. So, uh, this is the one from McDaniels and Dutch. So, I don't know when they brought it up, but it's going to have to get replaced pretty soon because it's falling apart a little bit. The brown paint has flaked away where two names and dates are carved into the sagging arms. On the left, Joshua B. McDaniels, June 12th, 2011. On the right, Michael J. Dutcher, September 15th, 2011. I don't know where the one for O'Brien is, otherwise I would have found it. Uh, we probably have to remedy that situation when we get the chance. Miner searches high and low for a marker with the name of Nicholas O'Brien, the platoon's first KIA. Maybe the timbers gave out to the wind, or maybe O'Brien's name has been worn away by the elements. But uh, yeah, I'll have to... Uh... Ask some of the guys about it. Even this profound monument to memory requires people who still remember to keep it from disintegrating. And most of the men who knew O'Brien left here years ago. 
Dutcher is the one I knew. He's the one I remember. And when I run my fingers across his name etched into the timber, it feels like the real start of this journey. You can just sit here and just like listen to the wind blow and you can almost feel their presence around you. A CH-53 helicopter thumps across the valley at eye level. Artillery booms from a distant training range. This is California, all right, but it isn't Hollywood. Miner knows this scenery and this soundtrack by heart. He doesn't say a whole lot or show much emotion while we're walking around. But even though Laura is wearing sunglasses, I can tell it's all pretty intense for her. She was with Miner through the entire Sangin deployment and there to catch him when he came home. Laura, what, what's it like for you to come up here? It's a little overwhelming. It's overwhelming because it kind of brought back those memories, like waiting to hear the news and looking at the articles and like seeing these names pop up. It's, it's really overwhelming. It really is. I met O'Brien maybe, what, once, babe? Once or twice. Dutch. <laughs> Dutch <laughs> I met him, and like he said, they're, they're so young, you know, and just like that, one day after another, you just get seeing the names pop up, and and um, just hoping that it's not your guy, the next one, you know, it's really hard, it's hard, yeah. And have you been up here before, or is this your first time up here? It's my first time. That's why I wanted to come up here, because I wanted to pay the, the homage. Well, I'm glad Michael's home. <laughs> yeah, I am too. That's what I told him. I said, I don't care what you do, you come back with all your fingers, all your toes, <laughs> and your limbs. <laughs> That's all I ask. <laughs> nah, he did. We'll be back after the break. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley, and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slammed up. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe 
Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Remember us? After leaving Camp Pendleton, we drive inland to Menifee, where Miner lives with Laura and her daughter. The house is tucked back in a new suburban development carved out of dry hills. It's okay. It's okay. It's us. The dogs are never far from Miner's side. They follow us as he shows us around. It's a nice house. I like this neighborhood. How long have you guys been here? The house has high ceilings and it's decorated with a minimalist touch. There's a big gas grill and an AstroTurf lawn in the backyard. Check, check, check. We set up for the interview in the living room with the dogs panting at our feet. I've asked Laura to join us because, in her own way, she survived the deployment too. And she's been a support to Miner ever since. But before we get into any of that, I want to know some more basic stuff. Like how they met. A couple co-workers and I, we decided to go to Vegas. Uh, One of the co-workers, she had a thing for Marines. It's the Marine Ball. We need to go. There's going to be Marines. I was just getting over my divorce, so I was just like, sure, let's go. It was November 10th, 2010, the day of the annual Marine Corps birthday ball, a huge bash celebrating the Marine Corps' founding in 1775. So I had my yard of booze. I'm walking the strip. I'm like, I'm trying to have a good time because I needed to kind of decompress. Wait, and... your yard of booze. Is this like one of those super tall? <laughs> yes! Yeah, that, 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 the big old you know, yard. They sell, it's Vegas. Yeah. So um, my favorite place on the strip is the Bellagio because of the falls. Laura was standing by the Bellagio fountain when the lights went down and God bless the USA erupted from the speakers. She was thinking about her ex-husband, who was in the military and served in Iraq. Her buzz was kicking in, and it was all a bit too much. So I'm just like, <laughs> this, how could they play this song? And as they're playing this song, a sea, a sea of Marines start walking down the strip. So my friend's going crazy because like, oh my God, all these Marines. I mean, for a woman that likes men in uniform, I'm just going to throw it out there. It's just like, wow, look at them. But they're so young. You know, they're, they're all kids. And that's when Laura sees Minor for the first time. He walks by. He goes, ma'am, are you okay? And I'm like, yeah, 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 I'm fine. He goes, you look like you need a hug. And he hugs me. And so, of course waterworks. <laughs> I'm like really sobbing at this point because he gave me this huge hug. He's been by my side since. Yeah, that's wow. the story. <laughs> that's amazing. It, it couldn't be more like fireworks, you know, 
It was a total rom-com. <laughs> total rom-com scenario right there. Funny thing is my friend took a picture when he hugged me. So this is the actual picture? This is the That's actual the picture. Wow. The moment we met. How that is that? the actual moment. Amazing. In the photo, Laura's wearing jeans and a gray tank top. You can't see her face, but Miner's beaming. The flash catches the brass buttons on his dress blue uniform and his white gloves and hat, which Marines call a cover. Isn't that funny how that works? <laughs> that we actually got an image of our actual meeting moment. That's great. Laura and Miner stayed in contact after that first fairy tale encounter. She's nine years older, and she kept saying he was too young for her, but Miner said he didn't care. In the end, Laura didn't either. They got together whenever he had time off. But the clock was already ticking. Miner was shipping out to Afghanistan in a few months. You know, I think the moment where it really hit home was when he was deployed. I think that's when it got serious for me because I'm just like, oh my gosh, I'm, now I'm really involved. When Miner finally left for Afghanistan in March 2011, Laura wanted to show that she was still thinking about him. That was my thing. I was like, what do you want? What do you need? I'll send you care packages. And I would send as much as I could so that he could share it with everybody. So I, I was doing what I could because I'm like, I just need to make sure they're okay. Miner kept in touch with Laura when he could through Skype and the occasional satellite phone call. It didn't matter what time I fucking called you, but hello. <laughs> I was up waiting for that call. Trust me. <laughs> Every Skype. There was one time I missed your Skype and I was kicking myself because I knew how limited he was on being able to call. He'd never had a serious girlfriend back home during his previous deployments. In fact, he'd never had much of a support system at all when he was overseas. He never knew his father, and his mom worked third shift at a plastics factory near Seagrove, North Carolina, where he grew up. She was often at work or asleep when he called. So it meant a lot to him to know that Laura would always pick up, even if he didn't have much to say. I was in zombie mode. Yeah. You could hear it? Yeah. yeah you can hear in his voice he was just completely just exhausted. Mm. Beyond exhausted. Laura was getting limited information from Miner, but she followed the reports from Afghanistan. On the computer, day in, day out, waiting for calls, looking for every update, any information I could get. I'm, I'm like the type that needs to know. I need to know. But I think when it really, really hit me hard when I started seeing the names starting to come through and the fatalities and, the, and um, there I was like, you've got to be kidding me. Miner's battalion was getting torn apart in Sangin. Marines were being killed and losing limbs to IEDs by the dozens. When that violence erupted around patrol base fires in June 2011, Miner worried about how the younger Marines would take it. Here he is back in Sangin. They have short fuses, pretty much. Like, they, don't, they haven't really learned how to control their emotions whenever situations happen. Miner already had two combat deployments to Iraq under his belt before Sangin. He was what you would call salty. You've been around. Yeah. You're 25 years old, but you're a fucking granddad compared to these kids. That's basically what I'm trying to say. So what's it like seeing some of these, you know, young kids go through this when you have as much experience as you do? I, already, I came to this already knowing what to expect a little bit. These guys had no fucking idea. It wasn't Miner's first time witnessing fellow Marines being killed and he knew how crucial it was to demonstrate calm. 
when we took our mask houses, I had to control everybody and like try to calm them down and be like, look, it's all right, don't worry. I've seen this before. You don't see me overreacting. You shouldn't be overreacting. I told them the day that I overreact about something or flip out about something would be the day I, I will let them. He's talking about the June curse, when 3rd Squad's platoon suffered three mass casualties in a span of just six days. When 3rd Squad's original squad leader got blown up in the June 12th mass cas and was medevac to the States, it was Miner who had to step up. That was kind of hard because, you know, I wasn't really used to taking over the squad. I took it over, ran the squad for a little while, and I had to transfer myself from dealing strictly with my fire team to dealing with the whole squad. So, I mean, that was pretty hard for me. Marines prepare for exactly this situation, when the leaders with the most training and experience are suddenly knocked out of the fight and the senior Marine standing has to take charge. Miner embraced his new role, and he was reluctant to let it go when Sergeant Jarek Fry flew in from the U.S. to replace him as squad leader a month later. By then, 3rd Squad had more than half the deployment behind them, but it hardly felt like the downslope. For the folks waiting back home, things were tense until the final days, too. They knew the deployment was supposed to last seven months, which meant the guys should hit American soil in October 2011, but it was all pretty vague. We didn't know when he was coming home. They wouldn't tell us, obviously. His mom would ask me, anybody heard any news? No, nobody knows. So we had like a Facebook page where like the families would keep in contact. And so we finally got a date. And um, then it was the, you know, anticipation like, when are they going to be here? When are they going to be here? On October 17th, 2011, while the 3rd Squad Marines made their final approach into California, their loved ones gathered at Camp Pendleton holding welcome home signs. We had to wait and wait and wait. And we saw the bus. They're like, oh, here comes the bus. We're, oh, my gosh, finally. Thank God they're here. Mm-hmm. And um, the bus got there. It was another hour, two hours. I don't know if they were what you guys were doing, but... We're turning in our weapons. Yeah, and we're like, where the heck are they? We're dying. I mean, I was like, I need to see him. I need to see that he's whole, that he's good. Once the Marines had finished turning in their weapons, they fell into formation where the families could see them. Sure enough, as soon as they started marching, I was like, oh my God, there he is. I wanted to run to him, and it wasn't until they, they stopped and got out of formation that we finally could go go see them. And like, I jumped on him. I was like, <laughs> I was like thank God you're home. Like, oh my God. I think after that, it was, for me, it was just like, okay, I, I really, really, really care about this guy. <laughs> he looked surprised for me to be there. It was the first time I had anybody meet me when I came back from the deployment. And I said, how could, how could it be the first time you ever, after having already three deployments under your belt? And- it's because I told my family, just, I'll, I'll meet you guys when I can. There's no point in you guys sitting there waiting for me. But Laura did wait for him. She held him close, just as he had embraced her that night in Vegas. I could tell he was in a zone, like zoned out. It seemed like it was surreal to him to be home. The way Miner remembers it, Laura's embrace on the tarmac that day would help set the course of his homecoming. It was the warmth that that you need when you're cold. I was in my own little world, but once I felt her embrace, and it just like, it, 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 it slowly awoken, you know, the way I was before I left. Like a, 
caterpillar coming out of his cocoon and becoming the butterfly. Not not quite a butterfly, like a manly creature that comes out of a cocoon, like a cicada or something. For Laura's sake, as much as his own, Miner hoped he could continue the transformation. All right, I'm no longer going to be the person that she met, so let me try to get back to halfway or a little bit more than halfway to what I was before I left. I knew he was going to be different. They were all different. We were all different. The other guys, they were younger. It was their first deployment, and for them, I could see the difference. You can see... You know, they left boys and came back men, basically. As tight as the squad had been in Sangin, their bonds began to loosen as soon as they got home. When we got back, we all took shots. I think Fry, his wife, brought, like, some Jack Daniels or something, and we all took, like, shots and shit. And we like, oh, welcome back. And took shots, and then we went about our ways. Some of the guys transferred to other units. They made new friends and got shipped out on overseas cruises with the Navy. After so much time together, Miner was ready to be away from the squad. We would do anything for each other, but I mean, you stare at the same person for nine months straight and eventually you want to strangle the fuck out of them. It's like they can just like breathe, like stop fucking breathing. Laura had a front row seat to Miner's decompression. In the beginning, it was a lot of drinking, a lot, to the point where he would just pass out. And he wouldn't talk about it. He was still at the red line all the time, jacked up to the point where sleep was impossible. I could probably drink maybe like 20 beers and I still, it'll take me about an hour or two after I drink all that just to fall asleep. And it wasn't just alcohol. I would down like half a bottle of that Zequil stuff, which most people would like probably drink the little cap full and knock them right out. After eight years in the Marines and all that time in combat zones, Miner had developed some strange rituals. You would literally sleep with your rifle inside your sleeping bag. And that's that way, you know, it doesn't get messed up. And also no one can take it from you when you're sleeping. And being so used to having certain things around you, it's, it's an addictive thing. And you're just naturally like reaching over for it to make sure it's still there. To make sure you're like, all right, I'm good. It's, it's right there. I'm safe. So what are the things, do you have things now that you find yourself reaching for? Or are you still reaching for those phantom things like your rifle and your, your ammunition, your, your body armor, your helmet? Are you still reaching in your imagination for those same things? And I, you're like, oh, I don't, need, I don't need those anymore. I have to put my phone a certain way. I put my watch a certain way. And then uh, I'll have a, sometimes I'll have a fan on. Uh, but there's moments that I can't have a fan. Um. <laughs> it gets cold in there. <laughs> I got the dry eyes. But I, I usually, like, I'll sleep with a fan because when I was growing up, I would, you know, me and my mother shared a room. She worked night shift, and I would, you know, be in the room asleep, but she, we would always have a fan. So when I turn the fan on, it makes it tricks my brain into thinking I'm back home with my family. So therefore, when I turn the fan on, I'm, I'm done. I'm out. The term for the condition that Miner describes is hypervigilance. Basically, being in a constant state of fight-or-flight mode on high alert, always scanning for threats. Hypervigilance is a hallmark of post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD, a mental health condition you've probably heard of. Miner was diagnosed with PTSD in 2012 by the Department of Veterans Affairs, the federal government agency that provides health care and other benefits to veterans. 
The VA also evaluated the physical wear and tear for miners' military service. They did like a MRI and like scan of my shit, and I have like the bone structure of like a seventy-year-old man. <laughs> wow. Do you know what Rice Krispie Treat sounds like when you pour milk on it? That's what I sound like in the mornings when I wake up. Like, my whole body just, like, like that right there is just, like, me stretching my arm out. And that's, and then, like, my knees will do it. I can't even do it with my nose. Like, like everything just pops. He has to wait till everything loads when he wakes up. He just has to, like, (laughs) go into it. So, like, when I I wake up tomorrow, because, you know, we did the hike and everything today, I'm going to be like, you know how old people walk with their little walkers? That's what I'm going to look like until my body just goes, wait a minute, you're actually up? Okay, hold on, let me, let me get everything going real fast. Miner has a 60% disability rating from the VA, 10% for knee issues and 50% for PTSD, which means they determined his military service reduced his overall health and ability to function by 60%. This rating entitles him to about $1,000 in disability from the VA each month. PTSD is Miner's biggest issue. And when his memories from Iraq and Afghanistan surface, it goes like this. My brain will start playing the images through, and it's like a, like a little reel. It'll just go, it goes through all of them. And then sometimes it'll, it'll stop on one moment, and then you, know, you remember all the gory details, and then it'll go to the next. And then it'll slow down. Yeah, so are the memories any less intense when they do come now? Or does oh, it no, still they're, seem like... they're still... Like the day I was, I can remember all the smells. I know all the sounds. I know everything that was going on. Memories of the June curse stand out for Miner. I can recall the moments when, you know, we pulled O'Brien up onto the shoreline and we covered him in, uh, in a poncho liner. I can recall the moments and the sounds of, that McDaniels were making in the moment that, you know, we, we knew that he was leaving us. He says he also clearly remembers the moment Dutcher got hit. I know there was debris being thrown up whenever whenever Dutcher stepped on the IED, uh, the way the trees moved from the explosion itself. Um, I remember it all really, really, really vividly. Miner tells me the day Dutcher died started out like any other. The squad was out on patrol, walking in a single-file formation called a ranger file, with everyone following the path of the sweeper. You have to patrol single file when you're over there. It's, there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. You have to. They walked with big gaps between them so that if someone stepped on an IED, it would be less likely to hurt the man in front of them or behind them. Because there's so many IEDs thrown out all over the place, and that's the reason why we would travel through cornfields. We would travel through the canals. And if we had the availability, we would let the locals herd their sheep through our patrol paths. So the sheep would step on it, not us. Dutcher had volunteered to sweep for IEDs that day because the squad still didn't have a full-time combat engineer after losing McDaniels. So he was up front with the metal detector. Miner was toward the rear of the patrol, about 75 yards from where Dutcher was. I was making sure that all of us were out of the canal. The Taliban hadn't figured out how to put IEDs in the water yet. So the squad knew they wouldn't get blown up walking through the canals. But doing that caused other problems. Because some of the canals, they're, they're like have steep embankments, and sometimes you can just reach out and grab the grass and pull yourself up. But we always had someone there at the top to make sure that they actually got up, because if they would fall back, because we had all the gear, if they were to fall backwards into the canal, unless you can get all your gear off, you're going to drown. Miner was on the bank, helping the last guy out of the canal. 
Next thing I know, all I heard was, you know, the explosion. Dutcher had stepped on an IED. Chaos followed. Some of the squad members pulled security while others made their way to Dutcher's side to treat him, worrying the whole time about tripping a secondary IED. Bollinger, the radio operator, called in a medevac helicopter. And just like McDaniels, Dutcher still had a pulse when they loaded him aboard. So what was the mood when Dutcher got put on the medevac bird and flown away? It was surreal and quiet. Like, no one really no one really spoke until we got back to the patrol base. Dutcher died on the helicopter. There were only two weeks left until 3rd Squad was supposed to leave Sangin for good. And it was one of those, like, disbelief moments. It's like, there's no way that actually fucking happened. We're almost done. How did that happen? Sitting here in Miner's house, 10 years after that terrible day, I ask him what Dutcher was like when he was alive. He tells me about meeting Dutch for the first time. Well, he had those goofy-looking fucking glasses on, and he just... He, he looked out of place. In all honesty, he did not look like he, he was in the infantry whatsoever. He looked like he was one of those admin guys. Like He's like, oh, that's a fucking desk jockey right there. Dutcher had come to the platoon from the Marine Corps Security Force Regiment, a special unit that protects critical U.S. assets around the world, like embassies and nuclear weapons. He arrived at 1-5 to finish out his contract in the regular infantry. Dutcher was not a hard ass. He earned respect in a different way. Dutcher would, you know, sit there and read read everything that he needed to. He'd ask all the questions that he needed to. He learned really quick about what he needed to do and how he needed to do it. So, Dutcher had a reputation for being smart. Mm. That was not a reputation. That was a fact. Tell me a little bit about about how you could uh, t- how you could tell that Dutcher he didn't was... eat crayons. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we had these little um, uh, little device. It's like they took your fingerprint and like a photo so we can ID some of the locals and shit. None of us knew how to fucking work it. Dutch was like, oh, let me get it. He didn't even look at the owner menu. He's like, it's easy. You just got to do this. It's yours now. Enjoy. Miner's talking about the bat hide, that small device I described in episode one when I talked about photographing Dutcher gathering biometric data from a villager. Dutch's mastery of the bat hide and the squad's other electronics impressed Miner. They were both from North Carolina, but they were cut from different cloth. He was the brain to the brawn type situation. He would he would think his way through certain things, and I would just fucking Hulk smash. That's the way I've always been. I was just like, no, fuck this. It doesn't work. Okay, we're going to do it my way now. But he would be like, no, wait, let's, let's try it this way. Or, you know, think, he would think about it. But I was just like, no, let's just fucking smash through it. By the time Dutcher died, the platoon had already lost two Marines, O'Brien and McDaniels. And multiple others had been sent home with missing limbs. Does the reaction change with each time, or is it fresh every time? It's fresh every time, but you get numb to the experience. Like, yeah, it, it sucks when someone gets hit and when someone gets hurt, but like I said, I was already numb to a lot of the experiences going on because I, I kept everyone close, but I wasn't like buddy-buddy with a lot of the guys. Miner told me about this tactic back at patrol base fires in 2011. I'll learn through personal experiences and stuff I've seen and some of my old seniors used to tell me. Uh, get close, but not too close. 
That way you have no emotional attachments to anybody around because you never know when their time is. So feeling-wise, I'm about to come off as a cold-hearted motherfucker because I really don't see the difference. Easier said than done. Now Miner tells me he had, in fact, let his guard down in Sanyan before Dutcher died with O'Brien. I just dropped the ball when it came to O'Brien because I, I, I just got a little too close to the guy. It hit me really, really hard because I used to hang out with the guy. I used to, well, we used to uh, drink water together at the barracks late at night and smoke cigarettes. <laughs> um, he wasn't 21. Yeah. This, but is all, I, this is all euphemism for... Drink, you got you used to drink together. Well, we used to drink water together, yeah. Um, but I, I just got, I, I let my guard down with him because, you know, we're, we're from the same state. And at the time, we were the same rank. The explosion that killed O'Brien ripped his body in half and launched his torso into a canal. And 3rd Squad received the awful mission of searching for O'Brien's scattered body parts. We had to take him out of some of the trees and stuff and pull him out of the water. It definitely, definitely hit different chord at that time. Hmm. And that's when I knew, I was just like, and this is the reason why you don't want to get too close. And so when Dutcher died three months later, Miner was already closed up. That's the way I treated everyone after, after that situation, after O'Brien. I was like, I got close, but I didn't let myself, I didn't open myself up any more than what I did with him. When they finally arrived at Camp Pendleton, Miner found Laura waiting for him on the tarmac, and with her, hoped for something better. His boots had barely hit U.S. soil when he made a decision. He'd had it with the Marine Corps. I just said, yeah, fuck it, I'm done. I'm not going anymore, because I knew that I was, I'm not going on any more fucking deployments. <laughs> I was like, I'm dropping my pack and I'm out. We'll be back after the break. Storm and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley, and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slammed up as well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James! LeBron James! And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. 
and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Miner's growing relationship with Laura kept him grounded as he transitioned into civilian life. But it's not like things were peaceful for him. Some nights, he would drink to fall asleep to defeat the hypervigilance that kept him wired. Other times, he'd get hammered to try to unlock emotions that he couldn't access when he was sober. And those nights that I would drink a lot, I would just let it all just flow through. When you say you would let it all flow through? I would let all the emotions and everything that I went through just rush over me. So what would happen? Uh, Crying, sobbing, sitting there, like wondering, like, why, what could I have done? What could I have done to this? How could I have changed that? Um... You know, like, there was a few moments when I was like, damn, that should have been me. You know, I should have been on that patrol and not them. Or it should have been me up front and not those guys. And I would just sit there and just let it just overtake me. I would ride the wave, per se. And then once it got done, it hit the shoreline. I would, you know, I'd gather myself up and go on about what I was supposed to be doing. And did you feel better after that? I felt a lot better after it. But the drinking is also a form of numbing. And a it's form a of, form of numbing a and coping, but it kind of makes you feel less of the emotions than what you would if you weren't drinking. Mm-hmm. They're intense emotions, but it'll be a less, a little bit less intense. It's it's like when you when you cook with a pressure cooker, you have to release some of the tension in the cooker, otherwise this is going to explode on you. So did you figure out how to do all that stuff on your own or did you go to therapy? I I did it on my own. Uh, And my thing about therapy is the only way a psychiatrist can actually help you is if they went through the same shit that you went through. Hmm. Because you can go to to Harvard freaking and get like the best freaking schooling you can for psychiatry. But unless someone experienced the shit that you've experienced, there's nothing they can say to you to help you out. Hmm. There's nothing. This is Miner's opinion, and I respect it, but I don't really agree. I don't think a therapist needs to experience combat firsthand in order to help veterans get relief from PTSD. But I can understand where Miner's coming from. He says he doesn't want to try therapy, and he definitely doesn't want pills. He wants to deal with it on his own. He's drinking less these days and says he's having an easier time accessing his emotions while sober. And he's got Laura to lean on, too. As we're talking, Laura and Miner scoot close to each other on the couch. She's been quiet for a while. So have you heard most of this stuff before? He has talked to me. Like there, I think he's gained more trust in me to kind of let me know this kind of stuff. And I think he's grown to kind of get through it a little bit more mm-hmm. um, as time goes by. But old habits die hard. There are days, like, when the anniversaries come up, I, I do see him, like, packing up the fridge or not as much anymore because I, I hound him on it. 
Um, there were several times where I just saw him just wasted, wasted, passed out. And it's not an image you want to see, but it's also like, well, what do you do? Deployments are tough on relationships, and so is PTSD. So it's no small feat that Laura and Miner's relationship has gotten stronger since he came home. I think being together kind of helped him a little bit, I'm hoping, transition, because he's, he's not as big an, of an a-hole as he used to be. Because he is. He's, he's, he, he can be a, an asshole. A complete asshole, and and he will be every now and then. It comes out. <laughs> is he is he putting on his best? Is he on his best behavior for? Oh us? yeah, right now he yes. This is the nice mic. This is the mic we like. <laughs> and for me, it's like I I can't even fathom having to see something like that he's gone through. It hurts me to to know that he's had to go through that. That they all had to go through that. Laura knows how war has affected Miner. She lives with it every day. But as with so many veterans, Miner's psychological and emotional wounds are invisible to most people outside of his home. There's guys that, you know, we've worked with that have, you know, like amputees and like they have prosthetics and shit. That's that's a first giveaway for a lot of people. But there's like people like me. I have very, very minimum like scarring on my body from, from all the experiences I have. But most of my shit is it's mental. Psychological trauma has been a byproduct of war and violence forever, even though PTSD only became a formally recognized diagnosis in the 1980s. These days, PTSD is a fairly common diagnosis. For better or worse, it's become a household term. Part of me thinks everybody has heard a very cliche version of the PTSD story, like to the point where they either think that we're Chris Kyle, American Sniper superheroes, who are like indestructible or they think that we are like hiding in our basement, you know, and, surrounded and, by a bottle of a pile of beer bottles and, and empty pill bottles. Like there's no in between. It's much more complicated. The, 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 it's more complicated than just two scenarios. I mean, that's the reason why I said earlier, I won't talk to anyone unless they have you know, similar experiences. Cause then they at least understand where you're coming from. I'm not surprised to hear Miner say this. He's already said he won't talk to a shrink who hasn't been to war. And I remember him telling me back in Sangin that he didn't plan on talking to civilians about his combat experiences for the same reason. We play that clip for him. What do you think you'll tell people back home about this place? Me? Your friends and your family. I won't tell them shit. Tell me why. I, they don't need to know this shit. No one needs to know the shit that we go through. Because if they started asking us questions about the shit we go through, they would... They wouldn't have any understanding because they were never there. They wouldn't know what you felt. They wouldn't know how it affected you mentally and physically. They wouldn't know how to approach you after you told them something that happened. You know what I mean? They wouldn't have any idea of what it feels like to hold a, uh, a tourniquet on somebody's leg while you're watching them bleed away. They wouldn't know any of that. Do you still feel that way? There's still no point. Like some of the people I have told some of the stuff to, I, they don't they don't treat me the same anymore. They treat me like I'm a fragile little, like a almost like a grenade with the pen being pulled on it. You know, they they just have to like make sure that they don't do anything to trigger me. And it, it irritates me the most is because treat me like you would anyone else. Patronizing is the, one of the least enjoyable things I've ever had to endure before when I told somebody some some of the stuff I've done. I can't stand it. 
I would rather tell someone to go to go fuck myself after I told them a story than have someone try to patronize me. Like, like um, thank you for your service, for example. I mean, that's 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 like the the go to thing because most people don't know how to approach a veteran. Just just walk up to us, talk to us, like have a normal conversation as if you were talking to. You know, your neighbor or your friend, you can ask her when somebody says that stuff to me. I was like, oh, yeah, thank you. And I just go on about my business because you hear it all the damn time. I never know what to say when people say that. I yeah, never know, you, I never know you, how you, to respond. You're, you're dumbfounded because you're just yeah. like, well, fuck, what, what do you want? Well, thank you for your service. Yeah, you know? thank you for thanking me. Well, fuck, you know, thank you for being a civilian. This is a good example of something that's known as the civilian-military divide. The cultural barrier between people who've served and people who haven't. One of the things you hear a lot when veterans talk about how frustrated they are about how civilians talk to them about their experience is they say the first thing civilians always ask you is, did you kill anyone or how many people did you kill? (laughs) And I can obviously, why are you laughing? (laughs) Because that's actually the first fucking question they asked. It's like, how many people did you kill? So what do you, when people ask you that, what do you, what do you say? Seven. And is, do you just pull that number out of a hat, or is that the truth? It's the truth. Four in Iraq, and then three in, uh, in the citation I have in Afghanistan. So you would tell a stranger that who asked you? No, I would not. I tell oh, you you're just fuck, telling me. I'm telling you oh, okay. to help bring awareness, but I would okay. tell a stranger to go fuck himself. It's okay, none of his so, business. So he, has, was... he has no fucking need to know. Like, why, why is that your first instinct? This isn't fucking Call of Duty. Like, why does that, well, how many people did you kill? Clearly not enough. You're still alive. Yeah, like, like I don't so understand. You, like, I don't understand. Like, what goes through their fucking heads? So, what like, do you think? I mean, why? Why do you think? Like, they... I, I don't know. Honestly, I, I, I couldn't tell you. My family it, doesn't even know how many people I've killed. Asking a veteran how many people they've killed is about as clumsy of a first question as you could possibly ask. But I can kind of understand it. When we're kids, we learn that killing is the worst crime a person can commit. But then we send young people off to war to kill on our behalf. And when they come home, we don't talk about it. We talk a lot about the people who get hurt. We talk a lot about the people who get killed. We talk a lot about the suicides, but we don't talk about the killing. And war is killing just as much as it is dying. And so I wonder, like, for you, you know, what, how has that factored? Like, obviously seeing McDaniels... I'm not phased by it all, by killing someone. Shooting someone in the line of duty doesn't bother me. And what it was about either it? me or them. It was literally like fight or flight. Mm-hmm. And there's no way in hell I'm going to run from a fight, especially when I know people that are around me could get hurt. So if it doesn't phase you that you did it in the moment because it was kill or be killed, you really were fighting for your life to, to save your yourself and your friends and, and all of that, then why is it offensive for people to ask the question? It's offensive because they don't need to know that information. It's like if I walked up to you and go, oh, how many girls have you fucked? You know? It's like shit like that. It's like, how is that any of my business? Like, it's, it's way too fucking personal to ask when you first meet someone, right? It's hard to imagine Miner talking to people who never served about any aspect of the war. Back in Sangin, he told me he didn't think too highly of civilians. I can't stand 
the fucking people as it is because they're just whiners like they want everything handed to them but they don't want to work to get it you ask someone in America to do something for you they're going to give you that go fuck yourself look what the fuck are you going to do for me but being in the military you're just like hey dude you think you can help me out this quick like yeah don't worry about it I'll help you out so I mean it's like Everyone that's a civilian is like conceited about me, 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 me. Despite the fact that Miner is a civilian now, he says his perspective hasn't changed. It's still true. I, I, I completely agree with everything that smart-ass, handsome man said. Oh my he still thinks civilians take things for granted, and he still thinks there's no point talking to him. Even after being out of uniform all these years, the barrier between us and them remains clear to Miner. He works the night shift at a convenience store near his house. And he says he can tell whether a customer was ever in the military as soon as they approach the counter. You can tell the difference because the veterans, we carry ourselves a lot differently. We carry ourselves with a little bit more, more pride than what a normal person would because, you know, we've, we've, we, we've signed on that dotted line. We agreed to, you know, pay that ultimate sacrifice. Mm-hmm. We agreed to go as far as we needed to. The idea that veterans are defined by pride and selflessness, while civilians are defined by hunched shoulders and a me, me, me attitude, just doesn't square with my experience on both sides of the divide. In fact, the longer I'm out of uniform, the more I think that veterans are civilians, and they're just as varied in their personalities and values. Some are saints, some are shitbags, and most fall somewhere in between. As for the us and them attitude, I just don't think it helps anyone. I tell Miner all of this, and I ask him, is it up to us veterans to talk more? To explain to people what it was like? Is it up to us to bridge the divide? What we need to do is a lot of veterans, what we need to do is we need to start making sex tapes. (laughs) Uh, We need to start putting Gorilla Glue in our hair. Anything remotely dumb and stupid, make TikTok videos where we're fucking eating Tide Pods and fucking snorting condoms. Stupid shit is what gets people's attention. I I swear, I think the world now is... um, like the, the, the attention span of a fucking Labrador retriever. Ooh, squirrel. Ooh, squirrel. For Miner, the biggest kick in the balls, the thing he really can't get over, is that civilians are just not interested in what he and his fellow Marines did in Afghanistan. They don't, they don't care. It's not in their backyard. But you care, right? I care. Yeah, fuck yeah, I care. I lost too many, like too many good people for people just not to give a shit about it because they get tired of oh we're at war we don't want to hear about it. Oh, fuck you. You're losing a good American people who would literally throw their life on the line, to, even if they were back here, they would throw themselves in in front of danger just to protect your spoiled ass. Come on, they deserve more respect than that. It's getting late and it's been a long day. Before we wrap, I'm curious to know what Miner thinks about his own evolution over the last decade. So, do you think you got halfway back to the person you were before? Well, I'll never, you know, be whole after some of the stuff that we've seen. Uh, no, no one in their right mind will ever be whole unless you're like fucking Dahmer or those fucking serial killer people. That there's about probably the only ones that would like, oh, this is cool, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but no, I mean, maybe I don't know if if you had to put a percentage, probably like 80, 85, somewhere in there. I'll never get back to to the asshole that I was apparently. But you feel like you've gotten back some of what you I, I've gotten back a little bit of my humanity. But there's there's certain parts of me that that I I, I kind of I still want to feel the uh, the pain because if you get past that point and you forget a lot of the stuff that you went through, you'll never know how you're going to succeed in the future. 
The next morning is the start of another gorgeous California day, and for the first time in weeks, I feel well-rested. I finally got a good night's sleep. I'm not going to lie, I've been extremely anxious about this whole trip. I'm going to ask every one of these guys to talk to me about things they don't really talk about with anyone. Not their families, not their friends, not even their fellow veterans. And I'm also going to be looking into a lot of dark places in my own memory and in my heart. So I sort of wish we could hang out here for a while, kick back on one of those deserted beaches near Camp Pendleton, maybe even rent a board in a wetsuit. But the mission cannot be delayed. Tommy and I have to Hulk smash a 1,500-mile drive to Houston. As for Minor, when the anniversaries come around again and the next wave of memories rolls in from Sangin, I hope the ride isn't too rough. And when he hits the shoreline and gathers himself up, I hope he reaches for Laura. Third Squad is written and produced by Elliot Woods, Tommy Andres, and Maria Byrne. It's an heirloom media production distributed by iHeartMedia. Funding support from the National Endowment for the Humanities in collaboration with the Center for War and Society at San Diego State University. Original music by Mondo Boys. Editing and sound design by John Ward. Fact-checking by Ben Kalin. Special thanks to Scott Carrier, Benjamin Bush, Caitlin Esch, Carrie Gracie, Kevin Connolly, Lena Ferguson, and Nick Ward. If you'd like to see my photographs from Sangin and from our road trip, please visit thirdsquad.com. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter, at Elliot Woods. Before we go, if you or someone you know is suffering from PTSD, please know there's help. And if you're a veteran, you can get it for free from the VA. Visit mentalhealth.va.gov for more information. If you're having thoughts about suicide or self-harm, please call the Veterans Crisis Line immediately at 1-800-273-8255. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.